theme music. We are at a portion in the book of Corinthians in which the church at Corinth had gone through a painful process of church discipline. It was painful for the person receiving the discipline. It was painful for Paul who had to write and admonish and charge the church to perform the discipline. And it was painful for the congregation who had to administer that church discipline. And so in chapter 2, verse 5, it begins with, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but as some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. It was not a pleasant process. It was painful for everyone involved. It created a measure of sorrow for each one. But we are thankful to be able to say this morning that the individual who had been disciplined repented of their sin. So, what was the church's duty now? How were the Corinthians to respond to someone who had caused so much grief and uproar in the church? Someone who had committed such a, a heinous act. Someone who had been so flagrant in their disobedience to God and so insensitive to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now what? Now what should the church do since this brother has confessed and repented? They were to respond to the individual by extending forgiveness. So our theme this morning is that we need to forgive and comfort others who are repentant. We need to forgive and comfort others who are repentant. Why do we need to forgive and comfort others who are repentant? Three answers. We need to forgive and comfort others for their sake, for our sake, and for the church's sake. And we want to uh, explore that this morning. So first... We need to forgive and comfort others who are repentant for their sake. As I said, the church had administered church discipline. In verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Note the past tense. Punishment was inflicted. Though we cannot say with certainty what the individual did or who the individual was, it's reasonable to assume that it's the person that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who had a sexual relationship with his father's wife. An act that the Word of God says that even the pagan world didn't engage in. Even non-believing people would not have done what this man did. And Paul said that person needed to be disciplined. And the church administered discipline. They had done what Paul had instructed them to do. So, now what? Now that this man has repented. 
Well, the discipline that the church administered was to be viewed as enough. Look at verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was afflicted. The word for punishment is found only here in the entire New Testament. And the goal of church discipline had been reached. The goal of church discipline is not vengeance. It is not simply to mete out punishment. The goal of church discipline is to bring a person to <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> to bring a person to repentance, to seek forgiveness from God and to change their conduct or their behavior. Since the goal had been met, namely the person sought God's forgiveness and they repented of their sinfulness, they changed their behavior, now the time for punishment was ended. Therefore, the time for punishment had come to an end. Now it was time to restore the individual. Note the word contrary in verse 7. So on the contrary, the opposite of punishment was to grant forgiveness and comfort. Rather than to heap on more punishment, now was the time to heap on forgiveness and comfort. Forgiveness at its very essence means not to hold against him or charge to his account his previous actions. They needed as a church to let go of any anger or resentment that they had harbored against this individual. They had to give him a clean slate, his previous wrongdoing to be forgotten. And not only was the punishment to be ceased, in contrast, he should be comforted. Notice verse 7. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. So they should seek to ease his pain and suffering as opposed to add to it. He is to be actively encouraged and to fully be restored to their fellowship. He is to be welcomed, to be at ease. No awkwardness. He is to have a renewed sense of belonging. He is to feel loved. Verse 8. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Not that he had ever been stopped being loved. The discipline was to be administered in love, but it certainly would not have felt that way to him. He would not have seen it as love. And so they're to reaffirm, reestablish, reassure their love for him. They're to make it abundantly clear that he is loved and welcome him back in their midst. The reason that he is to be forgiven and comforted is so that he is not destroyed spiritually through excessive sorrow. We find out that he had experienced sorrow on many different levels. Verse 7. Lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I'll deal with the word excessive in just a moment. But the point is that here is a person who has experienced sorrow, grief, anxiety, anguish over what he had done. 
And there were a number of levels of this sorrow, if you will. There is the sorrow that exists as a result of the consequences of his actions. Certainly, it would have brought turmoil to his family relationships. If you can imagine this man having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. That's going to create problems in the family, to be sure. And there are a lot of sorrows. A lot of anguishes that attend such actions. He suffered as a consequence of those actions. He was shamed. He was humiliated. He was viewed as a terrible person. He experienced sorrow as a result of the church's disciplinary action. Not only did he suffer humiliation from the very act, but now he was publicly censored by the church. Paul said that he should be put out, excommunicated from the church. Evidently they did that. Evidently they had formal church discipline in which this man was put out of the church. That creates sorrow. That creates misery. That creates heartache. You can imagine the difficulty of having to go through that. And then, there is the sorrow that accompanies his own repentance. As he comes to grips with his own sinfulness. When he comes to realization of what it was that he did. And really how awful it was. And how that it brought shame to himself. Shame to his mother. Shame to his father. Shame to the church. And shame to the cause of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Paul rejoices not just that this man was made sorrowful, but that sorrowfulness brought him to a place of repentance. Paul says, That's enough. That's enough. There doesn't need to be any more there doesn't need to be any more punishment, and there doesn't need to be any more sorrow. Verse seven. Lest somehow such a, a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Excessive sorrow. Sorrow that goes above and beyond all of the sorrow that we already described. A sorrow that keeps on after there is repentance. The person is to be forgiven and comforted so that the person would not go punishing himself and as a result lose faith or fellowship with the people of God. Notice in verse 7 that it says that he would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Literally, it is a word to be drowned. To be overwhelmed like a huge flood that comes upon an individual and just carries them off. Paul says, unless this excessive sorrow come upon this man like a flood and just carries him off. Carries him off in moving him away from God or carrying him off, moving him away from God's people. The fear is that the man would give up and abandon his faith or his 
relationship to God's people. I have met an awful lot of people over the years who continue to punish themselves in spite of the fact that God has forgiven them for their sin. There are some people that never get to the place of really rejoicing in the forgiveness and freedom that comes through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They still hang their head. They still have a lot of sorrow. And certainly, the pain of those actions doesn't entirely leave. But there should be a sense of release. There should be a sense of, I'm acceptable in God's sight. I'm acceptable in the sight of God's people. And one of the things that is tremendously saddening is that some people don't experience the forgiveness of God the way they should because they don't experience the forgiveness of God's people the way that they should. God's people won't let them enjoy the forgiveness that God so freely wants to bestow. So Paul warns the church here not to bring excessive sorrow upon this individual so that he is not overwhelmed, just carried away in this flood of sorrow away from God or away from the church. Application. There are many instances in which individually and corporately we need to restore those who have repented. All too often, God's people are reluctant to do so. This oftentimes comes as a result of a a false view of spirituality. A failure to recognize our own sinfulness and a failure to recognize the tremendous grace of God. It is important to point out in this verse that it's talking about a principle. If you look at verse 7. It says, So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Lest somehow, and then if you have either the NAS or the King James, it says such a one. If you're reading the NIV, it says that he will not be overwhelmed. But the other is a literal translation. That such a one would not be overwhelmed. It's now taking a specific case and expanding it to a general principle. And that is, just as this person should not be overwhelmed in their sorrow, lest they be carried away, now, in general, this is the way that we're to respond to repentant people so that they are not carried away in their sorrow, moved away from God or the church. They are not to drown in that sorrow. The whole point of church discipline, is restoration. It's to bring people back to God and back to God's people. It's to restore them in fellowship with God and restore them in fellowship with God's people. That's the goal. And that's what they needed to do. Secondly, 
We need to forgive and comfort others for our own sake. It is our Christian duty to forgive and comfort others. As such, we need to be on guard against an unforgiving spirit. Initially, it had been the church's duty to discipline this individual. Paul had written them with the intention of seeing that they would pass the test in regards to this spiritual duty. Verse 9. For to this end I wrote, past tense, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient to all things. So Paul had written them in the past, putting them to the test. Are they going to discipline this man or not? It was a test that some had failed. A duty that some had shirked from. For notice in verse 6, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted, and now these words, by the majority. Inflicted by the majority indicates that there was a minority. There were a group of people that didn't go along with the discipline that the church was administering. There were a group of people that didn't want any part of that. And there were a group of people in the church that were not supportive of what the church ultimately decided to do. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we find out that one of the reasons that people were unwilling to go along with the church discipline it was, was because it was outside of their concept of loving this individual. It would not be the loving thing to do. And they prided themselves on being loving and gracious and kind. So they would never think of disciplining a person like that. Nevertheless, the punishment had been initiated and the punishment worked and the matter was resolved. The man was repentant. Now there was a new test. The old test was Would the church administer discipline? Now there's a new test. Would the church restore the person who had been disciplined? Would the church now demonstrate love to this person by forgiving them and welcoming them back in their midst and enjoying complete and full relationship with him? Now the concern is that just as there had been a minority that was unwilling to discipline now there would be a minority that would be unwilling to restore. Now there would be a minority that, that says, man, are you forgetting all the grief, all the heartache they caused us? Are you forgetting about all the things they put us through? Are you forgetting about what they did to the cause of Christ and, and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of this church? He calls himself a brother. Look what he did. Are you just going to forget about all that? And they weren't really willing to restore him. A new test. Paul had powerfully advocated the discipline of the man. Now in the face and evidence of his repentance, he urges forgiveness and reconciliation with the same urgency and vigor they argued for the church discipline. Verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Just as surely as they must punish, so now they must surely forgive. But just as there had been a minority that was unwilling to discipline, now there was a minority that was unwilling to forgive and restore. 
Application. The Christian life is one of balance. And it is a difficult balance to maintain. The holy standard of the Word of God. There are times in which we need to rebuke. There are times in which we need to censor. And there are times in which we need to distance ourselves. Then there are times that we need to comfort. There are times that we need to encourage. There are times that we need to forgive and that we need to embrace. We're called not to do just one or the other. We're called to do both. And to do so in keeping with the mind and will of God. We're to express our love anew for those who are forgiven. Verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for them. This principle is true in any disciplinary act. Any disciplinary act. As a parent who disciplines their child. It is appropriate. It is appropriate. That little guy, that little girl that you have to discipline, you have to censure, you have to deal with their sinfulness and the tears and the heartache and they repent. You know, it's absolutely essential that you pick them up and put them on your lap and you hug them and you kiss them, and you tell them that you love them, and it's over, it's forgotten, we move on, and we encourage them in their relationship with God and the relationship with the family. They know they're forgiven. That's true in every disciplinary act. It's true not only in the family, it's true in the church. So we have to show that same kind of love and consideration and awareness of people's situation where we show them our love. Reaffirm your love for them, it says in verse 8. It is a real test of our Christian character as whether or not we're going to show love to those who are repentant. In verse 9 it says, For to this end I wrote you that I might put you to the test whether you're going to be obedient in all things. Obedient in all things. Would they be obedient in exercising church discipline? And would they be obedient in providing restoration and welcome? Both actions are required by God. There are just so many verses that we could look at for corroborating support. But just two I want to bring to your attention. First is Luke 17, 3. It says this, Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's that principle in a nutshell. If your brother rebukes, uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord's Prayer. And I would imagine most of you know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say with me, forgive us our debts as... That's the Christian principle. That's what we're to understand. And that's what we're to seek God. God, forgive me. 
the way I forgive others. That we recognize the need of our own forgiveness. You see, that's where the hypocrisy comes in. That's where that pseudo-spirituality comes in. We all are in need of forgiveness. We all have done things that we should not have. We all had to come to receive the forgiveness of sins. And so, we who joyfully and gladly receive the forgiveness of sins now need to share that with others. And so, we call upon God to forgive us in the way in which we stand ready to forgive others. It is our Christian duty. I'm amazed that so many times that people think you're letting down the standard. Sometimes, somehow you're, you're, you're falling into sin yourself by showing kindness and love and consideration to the repentant. Nothing can be farther than truth. It is the ultimate standard. It is the example of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third point. We need to forgive and comfort one another for the church's sake. For their sake, for our sake, as part of our Christian duty and growth, and for their sake. Paul reassures the Corinthians that they are doing the right thing in forgiving this man by speaking of his own forgiveness of him. Verse 10, But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Just as Paul in his absence spoke of his decision that this man should be punished, 1 Corinthians 5.3, for on For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Paul says to them in the first letter, I've already made my decision. Now, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, those that you forgive, I forgive also. But then he says something that's even more striking Verse 10, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes. Paul saw the forgiveness as necessary to the well-being of the church. To not extend forgiveness of this man would not have only been detrimental to him, but it would have been detrimental to the church. Paul says that he has forgiven this man as a result of Christ's authority. Look with me at verse 10 of chapter 2. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. I do it for your sakes. And now these words, in the presence of Christ. Turn with me, keep your finger here, and turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5. We didn't really look at this. This is the example of the man having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. These are the conclusions Paul draws. First Corinthians 5.3 For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Next words. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
when you were assembled, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I delivered him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, simply meaning that he's put out of the church, out from under the church's care and auspices, to let Satan do with him what he wants in order that this man would come to repentance. It happened. But what I want to point out here is in verse 4, Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, he's saying on behalf of Christ, we are acting in Christ's behalf. We are acting in Christ's stead. We are doing what Christ would want us to do. We are putting him out of the church. That's God's will. That's Jesus Christ in action through us. Now, in verse 10 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now, Christ's will. Now, Christ's authority. Now, Christ's example is, welcome him back. That's what Jesus did. That's what you need to do, is what Paul said. Jesus forgave. How in the world can you not forgive? Jesus welcomed back. How in the world can you refuse to welcome Him back? You are going to be in the presence of God for all eternity future. And so will He. You will experience the blessings of God. And so will He. You are going to enjoy full and complete and uninterrupted fellowship with God and one another for all eternity. And so will He. In the presence of Christ, you must forgive and comfort this individual. This man should be forgiven so that Satan would not gain an advantage over the church, verse 11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. We're not allowed to, we're not to allow Satan to make inroads in the life of the church through trickery. Satan does not want people to experience the forgiveness of God. Satan blinds the hearts of men to keep them from coming to experience the forgiveness of God. Satan wants nothing more than this man to not receive the forgiveness of God. If you withhold that forgiveness, you unwittingly are doing the work of Satan even when they thought they were doing the work of Jesus Christ. But they weren't. Satan's primary function and role in relationship to the believer is to make accusation or find fault. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren 
has been thrown down. That's referring to Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. He constantly seeks to find fault with God's people and alienate them from God and one another. We're doing the book of Job at night, on Sunday nights. And if you remember, as the book of Job opened, God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth that is as righteous as he is. What does Satan do? Bring an accusation. Ha! The only reason Job serves you is because of what you have done for him. You take these blessings away and he will curse you to your face. He brings an accusation. He tries to bring a wedge between Job and God. That is Satan's activity. To bring a wedge in fellowship between God's people and God. And to bring a wedge between God's people and one another. Paul says, you need to be aware of the trickery of the evil one. Be aware of how he's going to be at work in this situation. Be aware of how he's going to transform himself into an angel of light. And present himself as one who is concerned with righteousness. When in reality, all he's concerned with is unrighteousness. And Satan is going to present this as being unrighteous when in fact it is the righteous thing to do. So Paul says, for the church's sake, forgive this man. Welcome him. Don't let Satan get an inroad. Don't let Satan bring destruction to this individual or to the church and their fellowship and relationship to him. Don't let it happen. 1 Corinthians opens with Paul admonishing the church because it was filled with factions. It was filled with groups. Some following Paul, some following Apollos, some following others. They were a faction group. 1 Corinthians is all about coming together as a people of God. Now, in 2 Corinthians, the idea is you need to come together as a people of God, one mind, one accord, no majority and minority, as the entire church come together and embrace, welcome, forgive, comfort, and reaffirm your love for this individual. That brings honor and glory to Christ. That's what he's about. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he gives us the opportunity to experience forgiveness of sins. We need to extend that forgiveness and not hold it from any who repent before God. May God watch over us and may God not allow Satan to have an inroad through an unforgiving spirit in which we are unwilling to welcome and accept those whom God has welcomed and God has accepted. May we forgive others even as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Watch over us and protect us, O God. Help us 
to be a people that are pleasing in your sight. Give us a desire to welcome, embrace, comfort, encourage all who have sinned and repented. No matter what it is they have done, no matter what sorrow they have caused us, no matter what uproar they have created in the life of the church. Certainly, O oh God, we, we see before us a, 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 a very unique, in some ways, and difficult situation that is set there for us as an example. If such a one should be forgiven, how much more should we forgive others of lesser things? How much more should we forgive those who have created less turmoil, less hardship, less divisiveness, and less sorrow in the life of the church? Oh God, help us to see that our testimony is strong when we show the love of God in Christ, extending forgiveness that comes solely through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us all a desire to repent and grant to one another of us a forgiving spirit and encouraging one another, helping one another daily, even as it is today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.